Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Michael Mbagwu so that we can continue an ongoing exploration on Raise the Line about the ways that medicine is being changed by the ever-growing amount of data available and the new technologies which allow clinicians and others to analyze and use all of that information. Dr. Mike, as he's known, is Senior Medical Director at Verona Health, a digital health company that taps a real-world data network of more than 20,000 healthcare providers to deliver insights to clinicians and medical societies to improve quality of care and quality of life. Another important user group are life science companies, and we'll be learning how Verona's data is helping research into treatments for rare diseases as well. Dr. Mike is also an ophthalmologist with the Department of Veterans Affairs Palo Alto Healthcare System and an adjunct clinical instructor of ophthalmology at Stanford University School of Medicine. And thanks very much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we always start with trying to get some uh, personal and career background highlights from our guests. And we'd love to know how you first got interested in medicine and then particularly why ophthalmology? Sure. Well, long story. I'll keep it brief-ish. I was a self-taught kind of computer programmer, coder, build my own computers, that sort of thing growing up. And then when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of um, major. And so actually my brother was a pharmacist and he, you know, when I went to Ohio State, kind of followed in his footsteps, basically in terms of picking the major, but, you know, I wasn't really sure if it was going to be pharmacy. I just knew something science. And so I did join, I did join that, but about the end of, I would say about second or third year of college, I decided, well, what does one do with a biomedical science major? (laughs) (laughs) And med school was the next option, just because I think a lot of my friends and all the prerequisites were kind of doing that course. So guided me toward that. And then when I went to med school, you know, you go through the different rotations, you see what drives with you. For me, I intended to do internal medicine, but I really loved surgery when I started doing the rotation. And of the surgical specialties, it was ophthalmology that called out to me the most. So here I am. Why did it call out to you, do you think? You know, I really like the precision of the uh, surgeries. I thought it was really, really, I loved precise things. I really also liked the, the idea that what you do is a huge difference. I mean, there's vision. So direct, tangible outcomes and really benefits for people who undergo different surgeries. And frankly, I had a mentor that was just really great, really ushered me through, really opened his arms out to me. Um, Dr. Chambers at University of Washington. He's an oculoplastic surgeon, but he definitely was that great initial first contact. We hear that so often from guests that it was one mentor that led them down the path that they chose. It's a very, very powerful relationship. Yeah. And it it's humbling to me just because I, I still remember shadowing him. I remember going to the operating room and him just saying, hey, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. And, you know, as a med student, you're so worried about messing up and maybe getting good grades. But here was just somebody who said, here, your turn, surgeon. Let's go. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. So Verona Health, let's turn to that. Uh, help us understand more about the company and, and what you guys are trying to accomplish. Of course. So Verona Health, we're a health data company, and we are the stewards of a few registries. We work with American Academy of Ophthalmology in the IRIS database. We also work 
with the American Academy of Neurology with their axon registry. And finally, with the aqua registry, we work with the American Urologic Association. And so really all of these clinical registries were built to improve quality care and you know, answer different research questions as well as help physicians report quality metrics to payers. And with that then becomes the opportunity that you have this great database, lots of clinical data already getting collected to report um, quality outcomes for payment purposes. Let's repurpose that to research and other really other things. So what we do is we're the data partner and the steward of this registry on behalf of these societies. And we also work with life science partners to sell insights. Can you uh, give us a couple of concrete examples of how you folks think it has improved quality of care? Has it, has it led to new standards of care or anything like that? Definitely. You know, these uh, quality measures, MIPS measures, are ones where they often look really each year to see how many percent of physicians are meeting, you know, X, MIPS X, Y, and Z. And each year, actually, they revisit this and they sometimes raise the bar. They might even retire a measure. They really use also a lot of measures to inform the next one. So it's one thing, let's just say I wanted to take blood pressure at every visit. Okay, that's just a yes or no binary. The next step on top of that would say of the patients with hypertension, how many are controlled to 120 over 80? So that's like the next step. And we have the same in ophthalmology, you know, again, similarly of the patients with glaucoma, how many have had, you know, the eye pressure controlled at this certain level or have had annual testing. So kind of one builds on top of the other. And that's definitely a process that's done today. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the rare disease applications. Uh, We were discussing some of this before we started recording, but how does the use of real-world evidence have the potential to overcome obstacles to research into drugs that end up being treatments for rare disease? Sure. I think the work, or rather the um, data that Verona has is really suited for rare diseases in, in, you know, in part at least. And the reason is because you're really looking for a needle in a haystack. You're looking for certain keywords or certain genetic tests or just, you know, just something. And as we know, rare diseases, you know, some of these have a prevalence of only a hundred in the entire United States of America or even less sometimes. And so in the end, the way we categorize a lot of our data, you know, ICD codes and such, they might not capture the exact granularity, but clinical notes do. So if you wanted to find somebody with a specific genetic defect, a specific condition for which uh, ICD code doesn't even exist, clinic notes represent really the only place you could even find that information. And we work with a lot of life science uh, companies for just this. Ah, so the database includes the clinician's notes. That's right. The entire note, everything from your subjective symptoms to what the clinician then wanted to do to what she is thinking about in her differential, what procedures she thinks is suitable, kind of uh, going behind the veil, really, and really getting that complete 360 view of clinical care. Oh, yeah. That's an entirely different dimension and a really rich vein of information. I can totally see that. So, How is real-world evidence helping to accelerate and streamline rare disease clinical trials? Absolutely. So we right now have uh, at Verona um, Research Network and um, some other initiatives whereby we can help people when they are looking for specifically that. And what we do is we will meet with a client. They will talk about what disease or what treatment they want to look into. 
I'm myself am an ophthalmologist and we have other consultants that we work with in each of the subspecialties. So when we take the request in, we then do our own internal consultation saying, okay, as a practicing ophthalmologist, how would I document this? How would I actually, how would we expect this to appear? What are the different uh, permutations? And then we'll go through our notes and we'll print out a list and say, this is how many people are, you know, kind of showing up. And then if we choose to engage, we'll say, okay, well, let's maybe find out, you know, where these people are, where, what practices are they going to, what are their treatment patterns, what have they done before, you know, in the last year to five years, what is the standard of care of that, you know, and really just give insights to where these people are, but more importantly, what's actually being done. It's one thing to say what's what you should do and what we say we do, but what are we actually doing? And notes really help us figure that stuff out. Yeah, and this is a big obstacle in rare disease research because, as you were saying before, some of these are ultra-rare conditions. And you, for a clinical trial, you obviously need enough people to make it meaningful as research. That's right. And I think that's probably one of the most unfortunate things is that we have a lot of people and we have a lot of good ideas. And really that last mile of how you connect somebody with a rare disease to a trial that maybe even their doctor isn't familiar with or knows of. That's really what we're trying to solve here at Verona. So what are some rare diseases that might be impacted most through this? I can speak for ophthalmology just because I know, you know, that's uh, kind of my home court, if you will. But there's, I mean, uh, there's dozens and dozens, you know, really, when I think of retina diseases, we can think of things like Stargardt's, we can think of things like MACTEL, you know, all of these other, you know, very, very rare things. And then even you have conditions that, you know, because when you think of rare disease, there's rare genetic, and then there's rare that maybe isn't genetic necessarily. So some of these diseases whereby, you know, some people can have a specific phenotype, there's something called neurotrophic keratitis, where essentially the front of your eye for because of a virus or because of damage loses that sensation. And really that is rare because there's a lot of steps between us thinking, is this really just a severe dry or do they formally have really lost this sensation in the eye, you know, and that can be from a variety of causes. So it's not just, so, you know, and something like Stargardt's, that's something that you have and just kind of is what it is. Or, you know, we were talking earlier about retinitis pigmentosa and the first FDA approved drug genetic treatment with Luxterna. So that's one camp of genetics. And there's other camp of people with, you know, more common diseases, but now just have this end terminal manifestation of that. So really, you know, it's a rare disease, isn't a rare disease, isn't a rare disease. And that flexibility to have the notes define your phenotype, define who you're looking for, you know, is really the only way you're going to even find these people. You were saying when we were chatting before the recording started that rare disease is actually kind of prevalent in ophthalmology. How come? You know, I think we, you know, it's just one of the, in medicine, we all have our rare ones for, in ophthalmology, it's just, you know, not only does it happen enough, but it's frankly something really drilled in our heads as residents. We have these books that we study for, uh, there's a, it's an in-service exam, basically every year you take uh, something and it's called the OCAPS. But what they test us on really almost is always the exception. It's never the rule or what you see every day in clinic. So this stuff is really very much top of mind. I took my boards last year and I'm past and all done with that. But, you know, so all of this and a lot of my board study, frankly, was drilling in our heads rare diseases. The other reason is a lot of ophthalmic conditions have systemic manifestation. 
So it's not, it's one thing to have an eye disease. It's another thing to say, hey, by the way, those patients have a higher risk of cardiac issues or having a uh, brain tumor or something like that. So this stuff is, I, you know, at least in our field and certainly all in medicine, really drilled in our heads to keep at the back of our mind. That's great. I wish more disciplines could say the same. <laughs> so let's dig a little bit more into how artificial intelligence can improve the identification of patients and trial sites for rare disease clinical study, which is related, as I understand it, to how it can pull information out of the clinician notes we were talking about before. Yeah. So in the end, all of these notes are written, you know, in prose the way I would actually write it. So it's not going to be patient has this and got this. A lot of it might be me discussing it or thinking about it and ruling things out saying, less likely this disease, more likely that disease. To really extract the value of clinical notes, it's not just having it, it's the thoughtful curation of that and doing each of that at the disease level. So for instance, if I, you know, I treat a lot of patients with glaucoma, there are certain things that should always, or that we always look for. We look at the angle, the drainage angle of the eye, we might assess eye pressure and how thick the cornea is. In something like a um, diabetic retinopathy, where we're looking at different parameters, what's their hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. So the idea is that each one of these diseases have different notes and different texts that are important. So doing that on a disease level, using natural language processing and machine learning to thoughtfully harvest those notes and meaningful insights are really what we have to do. Yeah, and AI is involved from the very beginning, as you're saying. From the, the very, very beginning. I am consistently humbled talking with my AI colleagues here at Verona, where they have all these fancy methods, and I'm just always wowed with what they have. But I see why it's important, because some of the things that we just assumed were never possible or just were kind of hopeless endeavors with AI, we're now for the first time able to actually see that. Again, it's one thing to say, this person has retinitis pigmentosa. It's another thing to say, they have, they're no longer driving, they're having issues with night vision, et cetera. So then that way, if you wanna recruit people for a clinical trial, you need to know what level of severity and we can then kind of inform that and make our own levels of severity based on what we expect the language to look like at each stage. So do you have a sense of, uh, or can you characterize for our audience kind of the impact of all of this? How, how would you sum that up? You know, huge, <laughs> number one. And in all seriousness, it is. I, You know, I think for me, you know, one of the most unfortunate things is, again, you, you have these books that you study from and you read this one in a million prevalence or one in two million or something like that. And you read that. And I remember before just thinking, wow, that this is really unfortunate because I don't even know where they are. I don't even know what could even be begin to how to even characterize these people in the first place. But with all of this, I think this is how we will ultimately solve for rare diseases, at least in a very important piece, to be honest with you, is looking at them, realizing that in the end, a lot of these diseases that are rare, they're, even within that rare disease, there can be heterogeneity that hasn't yet then been researched or tapped into. And now we're seeing that. We're saying, well, there are some people, the classic teaching is this. Most of them have that, but we're seeing this other group that they, you know, they're related, but they're somehow different and really identifying, is this a different manifestation of what is a, the same disease? And what's the implications of that? Are they inherently two different patient groups? Is this even a new disease that we never thought of? You know, that's really what AI is going to make uh, possible. Yeah. 
the complexity of all of this is a little bit mind blowing. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's why it is so impressive that progress is being made. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. just a big mountain to climb. So, as you may know, Osmosis is a teaching company, and we love to get direction from our guests about a subject to focus on, something that you care a lot about. It could be related to what we've been discussing or not, it could be generally in the field of ophthalmology or something entirely different. Where you would say, you know, osmosis, you guys should make a video about that. What would that be? Um, you know, I am one of the passion projects that I did when I was in medical school. I took actually, a, I did a um, fellowship year between my third and fourth year of med school, where I was looking at um, disparities in care. And uh, here I was focused in Chicago. One thing that I would like osmosis to do is, again, we're get, I think we're getting to this really recognition that, you know, every population that has disparities we're not homogenous same thing with and disparities can be from rare diseases it's not just uh, ethnic or racial it can just be again disparities is just disparities it can be geographic etc I, I i i hope in the future and we're already getting that is really double clicking on each of these populations so that whatever solutions we come up with really is going to address the underlying problem for them in the context of where they are and not just a tone deaf one or a one size fits all. And I think that's really where data can help. So can we look at the patient journey? Did they have disparities because they got in at a later stage of the disease? Are there somehow a, a systemic difference in the way patients are treated medically in different, you know, if same patient, same disease, but perhaps a different demographic, et cetera. You know, those, those sorts of things. I hope that we can double click on that and really get granularities because that's the only way we'll solve for it. Actually, one of the goals of the Year of the Zebra campaign is equity. You know, this class of patients has been marginalized historically, not to cast aspersions on the medical community. There are reasons why uh, it's evolved that way. But, you know, if we're going to have an accessible, equitable healthcare system, we've got to up our game as far as uh, paying the kind of attention to this group of patients that they deserve. Absolutely. And, and and to that point, it looks unique, right? A lot of people with zebras, what's one typical story? They've been to many doctors over many years and told nothing's wrong with them, or we kind of think it's this and, and nothing quite helps, you know? And then finally, at the end of one, two, five, ten, even more, we then find, oh, aha, it was this all along. So again, you know, that is definitely disparities in care in and of itself and one that I hope can be solved sooner than later. Yeah, well, we totally agree with that. So we have a lot of students and early career professionals in the audience and, and like to get our guests to offer their go-to advice for people who are about to enter healthcare profession, particularly at a time when, you know, after the last three years, there's been so much upheaval. What What is it you tell students? Sure. You know, I think that each of us has something truly, and I'm not just mean that I'm not just saying this. I think each of us has something unique to offer. And I think to the extent that you can find what you actually want to do, what your passion is and merge that with your career is going to be phenomenal in terms of your personal motivation to get up every day, to take care of the patients, going the extra mile, et cetera. I think that you should never try to make the left shoe fit on the right. As I think many of us do in medicine, you know, we might be trying to go to a certain school or get do a certain specialty because we think that's kind of what we have to do as opposed to just being honest with ourselves and saying, what do I like? What do I think I'm good at? And don't be not being afraid to take the plunge. It's how I ended up in ophthalmology. Again, I, my plan was to 
be like Dr. House and be an internist. But, you know, when I did surgery, I felt like I had another calling. And, you know, at age 24, 25, I said, all right, well, let's just go for it. And I did. And I'm so happy I did. And I hope everyone else can listen to their inner calling. Yeah. And you're way nicer than Dr. House. So <laughs> I, yes, I don't yes, think that yes. that comparison Fine. doesn't work. No, no, yeah. No, <laughs> no one to aspire to. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you have found your passion. And, um, one other thing that I'm curious about is you have these different hats that you wear. You are teaching Stanford, mm-hmm. as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. You're seeing patients. You're doing this work with Verana. So another piece of advice maybe that would be useful to the audience is how you juggle all of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, carefully. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's hard. You know, for me, I when I went through residency, again, I saw myself as, you know, practicing ophthalmologist 60, 70 hours a week. That's it. But kind of midway through my residency, I really had this nagging of what I was doing before, that programming, that fellow year. How do I just make this? How do I own my career? And I was blessed when I did my fellowship at Stanford. I was connected with folks who were working at Verona, and they saw, well, you have this data background. You're an ophthalmologist. Let's see what we can do together. And so for me, it's natural because this is exactly what I want to do. And this is my way to still really practice medicine and find the zebras and find these people with rare diseases, you know, four out of five days of the week, and then go to the clinic uh, the other fifth day and to bring that. And for me, it's, it's been motivating and it to continue to practice medicine makes me still informed of the data. It's how I can give the insights I want to. And also it's very gratifying and it's something I don't want to lose. So you asked how I balance it. Yes, carefully, but also that I'm doing what I want to do. And so yeah, I guess the motivation hopefully speaks for itself, at least for now. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for joining us today and, and wish you the best of luck with all the different roles you're playing. <laughs> Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me on Raise the Line. I appreciate it. I'm Michael Carice. We want to thank the audience there for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.